Psalm 99. As I mentioned last week, I uh, spent a great deal of time while I was on vacation working my way through some of these psalms that I had not studied before. And uh, by the end of five weeks of vacation, I felt like a soda pop can that someone shook up. I wanted to... uh, I wanted to tell someone what I had uh, what I had learned. I had no one but Carolyn, and she grew fairly tired of hearing my expositions on these psalms. And so I, uh, well, I can hardly wait to uh, tell you what I've learned. I want to talk a little bit about the concept of worship in the psalms before we look at uh, Psalm 99, because I think. There's a widespread misunderstanding on what worship entails. Worship is more than using worship words. In other words, it's more than simply saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. Those are all good terms, expressions that are found in Scripture and that are sprinkled through Christians' vocabularies. But uh, there is much, much more to worship than merely using the right words. Worship is basically a response to truth. It's a way of looking at revelation. You learn something about the character of God, something new or a reminder of some truth that you've forgotten, and the result is praise. So praise is more than an emotional response to truth. It is a reasoned, logical response. It's based upon truth. In fact, in one of the Psalms, Psalm 47, the psalmist says, I will sing with my mind, literally. Which is the phrase that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 14 when he says, I will pray with my mind and I will sing with the mind. In other words, his use of the Psalms, his invocation of the Psalms, grows out of something he's perceived with his mind. He sees the truth and he responds to it. I'll give you an example. Last week we talked about Psalm 88, which is this wonderful little psalm written by a Canaanite. Uh, I mentioned last uh, last week that Heman, the uh, Ezrahite, or in Hebrew be Ezrahi, is a Canaanite. Uh, the word Ezrahi is a word for an aborigine, one of the original inhabitants of, of a land. And the Canaanites were the original, original inhabitants of this man Heman. As someone who was brought in from the outside, who learned of the grace of God and embraced it. And his praise grows out of that understanding of who God is. The very next psalm, Psalm 89, is written by another Canaanite. His name is Ethan. Ethan the Ezraite. And Ethan was reading 2 Samuel 7, or some reasonable facsimile of what we call 2 Samuel 7. And he saw that God had promised to David that one of his descendants would sit upon the throne forever. And and, uh, Ethan realized that that was a reference to his Savior, his Messiah, who was coming to take away his sins. He actually quotes the key phrase from 2 Samuel 7, God will build up that house forever. It was that phrase that struck him. And here's a Canaanite that came to realize that becoming a part of the covenant people meant that he became part of the people through whom the Messiah would come who would save the world. And he says, yippee, that's something to get excited about. And his praise grows out of that understanding. He has a Savior. The seed will come through David. 
Now, the same sort of uh, expression of, of praise occurs in Psalm 92. Psalm 92 is a Sabbath psalm. It was composed uh, to be sung on the Sabbath. And the point of the psalm is that uh, you work six days, and on the seventh day you knock off so you can praise God for, for his work. We, you know, we, we are so inclined to think well of our work that we don't have time to stop and think about his work. And this psalm was composed so that at least one day out of the week you can stop and reflect upon what God has done. And he, he looks at the work of his hands, he says, and he, and he praises God for that and the plan that lies behind it, which he says is extremely profound. Here's a man without electron telescope or microscopes and without radio telescopes. He has no idea of the profundity of God's scheme, but yet just looking at the stars astonishes him. And, and so he attributes worth to God. And in contrast, he says, the stupid man doesn't understand. The word he uses for stupid is a word that literally means brutish. A man who's like an animal. He's like a a bull out in a field who has his cows and his grass, and he sings, who could ask for anything more? It's like a man who has a $100,000 a year job and a good retirement plan and a, a, a condominium and a sailboat, and a membership, and a tennis club, and a charming wife, and 1.8 kids. And he says, who could ask for anything more? He doesn't look up. doesn't look up. We Christians are not nature lovers. Nature lovers is exactly what we are not. That's pantheism. We're God lovers, and when we look at nature, it makes us love God more because we see his handiwork in it. That's what the psalmist does in Psalm 92. Stops working long enough to look up. Incidentally, the Greek word for man, anthropos, literally means one who looks up. Even the Greeks understood that there's something unique about man. He has a sense of relationship to God that animals don't, uh, don't have. So do you understand what I'm saying? Here are two examples of the way we respond to truth. These, these words of praise to God have to grow out of some revelation that God makes of himself which we which we appreciate so much and for which we give thanks. It's exactly what Paul says in Romans 12. You recall as we taught through Romans the first 11 chapters deal with God's mercy. Here we are sinking deep in sin and God comes to our rescue and he saves us and it's all because of his mercy and grace not because of anything we've done. And Paul says in in Romans 12, now the only logical response is to worship him with our bodies, give him our bodies. So there's nothing wrong with using the words. We just have to understand that behind the words lie the truth. And then once we see the truth, then we can respond in worship. That's appropriate worship. Now, let's do this with Psalm 99. There are, there are three uh, responses in this psalm, as we will see. Now, when you first read this psalm, it seems very conventional. There's nothing unremarkable in the psalm at first reading. It, it belongs to a set of psalms that we call kingship psalms. They celebrate the universal kingship of our Lord. The psalm begins, the Lord reigns, and that's a phrase that will occur three times in this set of psalms from Psalm 93 through Psalm 100, the Lord reigns. The first emphasis in the psalm is on his loftiness, his highness, his greatness. 
In fact, His Highness would be a good name for God. Remember when Dr. Kissinger left the cabinet and his aides were wondering what he should be called, what title shall we give you now? It's inappropriate to refer to you as Mr. Secretary. And he said, well, Your Highness would be appropriate. Uh, Dr. Kissinger, I'm sure, was kidding. I hope he was. But in any case, it indicates the inappropriateness of using that title for anyone. It seems ludicrous to refer to a man as your highness, though we will sometimes do that. God is the one who is high, lofty, over the nations. The Lord reigns, the psalmist says. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned above the cherubim. I, I I think rather than a reference to the ark, as the NIV translators take it, and thrown between the cherubim, he's talking about the reality which the ark symbolized. It's what Ezekiel saw when, he, when the heavens were torn open and he saw God enthroned above the cherubim. Our notion of a cherub is a, a baby-faced angel. You know, we're indebted to religious art for that, that sort of thing. We've even formed an adjective, cherubic, which uh, we use to refer to innocent, uh, childlike people. They have baby faces. But a cherub is anything but a baby angel. Cherub was a mighty, fiery, majestic, angelic creature. Ezekiel describes him as with four faces, again, symbolically. The face of a lion and an eagle, an ox and a man. Perhaps symbolic of the four major categories of animate uh, creation. And uh, these are the sort of creatures that we would fall down and worship if we saw them. Psalmist says God is enthroned above them. He is over angels as well as men. He sits enthroned. He sits serenely and securely between or above the cherubim. Let Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. Now notice the phrases. He sits enthroned above the cherubs. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Uh, the emphasis in this part of the psalm is on God's sovereignty. He rules over all, over the entire universe. Now, we need to understand that this is the New Testament equivalent of the statement, Jesus is Lord. It's precisely the same spirit, uh, same expression. Because the New Testament writers understood that when the Old Testament writers referred to the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, They were referring to the Lord Jesus. If you want an example of this, just turn back to Psalm 97, verse 1, where the same phrase occurs. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. And then in verse 7, all who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols worship him, all you gods or all you angels is simply the word for for divine beings, angelic beings, which is the same phrase that the author of Hebrews uses and attributes to Jesus. He's greater than angels, the writer of Hebrews says, 
Because it says in the Old Testament, and then he cites this psalm, Psalm 97, let all the angels worship him, and the pronoun refers to Jesus. And you go back to this psalm, and the pronoun refers to Yahweh. It's clearly the argument of the psalm. The closest reference is back to the Lord reigns. So when we read these psalms and we read the Lord reigns, we must read Jesus as Lord. He's talking about our Messiah, our Lord Jesus, who is over all. But he is not above it all. That's the point of the first section of this psalm. He is high and lifted up. He is is lofty, but he took a very lowly Place, which is what the incarnation is all about. And, and, and the way the psalmist indicates his lowliness is that the little phrase that can escape us if we, don't, if we don't stop and think about it. Verse 2, great is the Lord, where? In Zion. Not over Zion. Unfortunately, I think the NASB translates it, over Zion. But it's simply the preposition in. In Zion. Well, where on earth is Zion? Well, if you go to Jerusalem today, they'll point out a place they call Zion. It's on the map, and any knowledgeable Jew will say, that's not Zion. Sion's over there. It's over there where the Temple Mount is. There's a big flat place that's been cleared on top of the mountain where the Mosque of Omar is, and the Dome of the Rock, and the Rock and Al-Aqsa Mosque, and they'll say, that's Zion. Sometime during the medieval period, the names got switched. But there's no question that Zion is where, where the Temple was. And it was a little piece of scrub-covered, windswept real estate that David bought from a man so he could put the tabernacle there and plant the ark there. Little dinky hill. Not nearly as big as Squaw Butte out here. And it probably looked just about like Squaw Butte. A few cedars, cypress, a few scrub bushes on it. Turks cut all the trees off of it to run their run their trains, so there, there's not much left up there. Just just a little little hill. One of the Psalms says, "The mountains of Lebanon, the mountains of Bashan, are jealous over Zion." It would be like one of the Satus over here looking at uh, one of these little foothills above Boise and, and getting jealous. Mountains of Lebanon are these snow-capped, ice-covered mountains to the north of Palestine. Some of you have seen them if you've flown in from that direction. And and they look down at this little, tiny, scrub-covered hill, and they're jealous. Why? Because God lives there. God dwells there. The counterpart of Zion today is the church. When the New Testament writers look back at Zion... They say that Zion was a place, no question about that, but Zion is a symbol of the people of God. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, you've not come to a mountain that can be touched. It's not like Sinai, a mountain you could feel with your hands and you could walk up the side of that hill. He said, no, no. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, Mount Zion. So Mount Zion is used uh, you know, in the Old Testament symbolically as the, the, as the place where the people of God gather around the person of God. And they just see it as, as the church, God's people. You and me gathered here this morning. Churches gathered. People gathered around Christ in churches all over the world. That's Zion. 
God has deigned to dwell among us. That's the majesty and the mystery of this song, that the, the, the God of the universe lives in Zion. He lives in us. He's here. He's in your classroom. He's in your kitchen. He's in your shop. He's on your back 40 when you're back there plowing. He, he's with you. He's Emmanuel. See, that's what the incarnation is all about. The lofty person of God took this lowly position, became one of us. It means he cares. It means he knows what's going on in your life. Our Lord Jesus uh, in the upper room said to the disciples, I'm going away, but I'm going to come again. And in that section, he actually refers to two comings. One coming is the second coming. Another coming is clearly the day of Pentecost. He says, I'm going to come again. I'm going to send the Comforter who will be with you forever. And he was talking about himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. He's just as close to us as he was to the disciples. He is just as near to us as he was to the first century Christians. He is just as much Emmanuel to us as he was when he resided over the temple in the form of that, of that cloud. He is with us and he cares about you. Theologians are, are prone to use big words that uh, may or may not mean anything. They talk about God's transcendence and his eminence. And what they mean is that he's over all, but he's not above it all. He's with us. He's with us. God got down and dirty, if I can put it that way. There, there's a marvelous little psalm. Few pages on. Will you turn there with me? Psalm one thirteen. This is one of the themes that I see repeated throughout the throughout the Psalter. God is is lofty, and yet God is lowly. I'd never seen the, 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 the emphasis quite so strongly as I saw it this time in just reading through some of these Psalms. Psalm one thirteen says, "Praise the Lord," and we say, "For what?" We have to understand for what. This is one of the Hallel Psalms, one of the Hallelujah Psalms. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. That is, universally, the name of the Lord ought to be praised. Why? The Lord is exalted over all the nations. His glory is above the heavens. There's his transcendence, his loftiness, his highness. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops way down to look, look at the heavens and the earth? My little granddaughter comes running into the room, and I, I just have to stoop way down and get down on her level to talk to her. And that's the picture that the psalmist gives it. And, and as an example, he cites the case of Hannah. This obscure, unknown woman. Now, you know, if, if Hannah weren't included in the Bible, no one would ever know who she was. Priest's wife, an obscure priest. Nobody even know, would know who Elkanah was if he isn't mentioned. Wanted a son, desperately wanted a child. And she was barren. She was getting older. And she was getting beyond the point where she could have children. And she, her husband said, well, what's wrong with me? I'm not enough for you. Said, no, I want a child. So Elkanah said, well, go, go ask God. And she asked, and God gave her a son, Samuel. His name means asked of God. 
She asked, and God gave her. Now, God doesn't promise to give barren women children, always. He may give something else. He always suits the case, the situation to the case, to the need. But in this case, he, he gave her a child. That's what the psalm is talking about. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes, with the princes of their people. Does that sound familiar? Well, it ought to because it's from the song of Hannah. This was her song. She was a virtual unknown. She wasn't, one of, she wasn't in the court. And yet she was seated with princes. He settles the barren woman in her home. As a happy mother of children. She had five more children after Samuel, as a matter of fact. Does God care about little people? You bet your life he does. In fact, the Bible is full of little folks. They're the oppressed, the widows, the orphans, the people that take it in the chops every day. The people that can't get justice from anyone. The people that are overlooked and overrun. Those are the people that God cares about. He stoops way down to look at them. He sees. He hears. And that's the emphasis in the first part of the psalm. It's on God's loftiness and his lowliness. The second emphasis in the psalm is on his, uh, is on his holiness. He is not only high, he is holy. The king is mighty. He loves justice. You yourself have established equity. So he loves the notion of justice and he establishes what's just. He tells us what's just, what's good, what's right, what's pure, what's, what's beautiful. We, you know, we, we don't have to question. Uh, we don't have to raise uh, uh, moral questions in some issues. Is it ever right to gossip? No. Is it ever right to commit adultery? No, never. Is, is it ever right to steal? No, never. Is gay good? No. Those are all questions that are answered for us in, in Scripture. He established equity. And in Jacob you have done what is just and right. So he, he loves justice and he establishes justice and he does what is just and good. And in Jacob, I, I, I'm convinced that whenever Jacob is used corporately for the people of God, it, it, the emphasis is on the rascally character of, of Jacob. He was the sort of fellow who was always fighting God and wrestled, wrestled with him to the very end. But God continued to love him and work with him and shape him and mold him and do justice. That is, perfect his justice in the life of, of Jacob. And Jacob, you have done what is just and right. And then he breaks into praise. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. If you notice three times in the psalm, he says, God is holy. Verse 3, let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. That's Zion. For the Lord our God is holy. Now we have to understand this concept of holiness. It, it, it simply means that God is utterly separate from sin. He hates sin. He can't have anything to do with sin. He loves justice. He hates sin, which raises the whole question of how God can love us and still hate the sin that, that indwells us. You know, we, we talked a lot about this notion, that, you know, how God justifies the ungodly from the book of Romans and pointed out the dilemma, if we can call it that, that God had. How, can I, how could he deal with sin? 
and yet save us. He loves us, and yet he has to judge the sin. He can't look at us and say, well, boys will be boys. We'll just overlook that sin. He can't do that because he is holy. He's utterly separate from sin. He's the judge of the universe. He has to act against sin. But he loves us. He wants to spare us. And so what he did was to go to the cross for for us. He bore our sin in his own body on the cross, and therefore he could be just and justify the ungodly. He could look at me and see my sin, place that sin upon himself. My sin killed the Lord Jesus, and he he could pay the price for that sin. So he could he could justify me and an ungodly man. That way he, his character is intact. He can still love me, and he can hate sin. That's the concept of justice that, that you find in both the Old and, and the New Testament. And what I see as I look at this psalm, and, and here, to me, this is the punchline of the entire psalm, is that not only is he against sin in general and for me, but he is for me against my sin. You understand what I'm saying? He's against sin and he's for me. And there are times that he has to be against me in order to deal with my sin. Anything that comes between, between God and me, anything that thwarts his love has to be dealt with in me. And I think that's the emphasis of the psalm from this point on. Now read with me verses 6 and following. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord and he answered them. In other words, these three men had a very special relationship to God. They had his ear. Most commentators will say the reason they're brought into the psalm at this point is because they were great prayers. They were intercessors. God heard them. And it's true. They were. Moses... uh, Read Exodus 17, Moses stood between God and the people and he interceded for Israel when they were at war with Amalek. When he he lifted up his hands, Israel prevailed. When he let down his hands, Amalek prevailed. It's a picture of intercession. He interceded for Israel. Any number of times he stood between them and God and interceded, prayed for them when when they should have been judged. And uh, uh, Aaron is described in, in the Old Testament as one who carried incense before the Lord. He was an intercessor. He was a great prayer. And Samuel was. Samuel prayed for uh, Saul and the people, and they defeated the Philistines. The Philistines were a powerful people. They had weaponry that Israel didn't have, and, and Israel prevailed over them through Samuel's prayer. And Samuel prayed for rain in May when it never rains and it rained. He's, he's depicted in the Old Testament as, as a great man of prayer. But that's not why they're included in this psalm, I'm convinced. Look at verse 7. He spoke to them from the pillar of the cloud. They kept his statutes and the decrees he gave them. He, he, that can't, he, can't be, he can't mean that absolutely. He can't mean that absolutely. He's talking about the intent of their heart. As he always is when he talks about the... the the so-called saints of the Old Testament, who were very imperfect, had startling flaws, and yet, instead of them, they they kept the word. It's a reference to their heart. They wanted to follow. They were loyal to the covenant. And notice what it says in verse 8. Oh, Lord our God, you answered them, but not because they were righteous. It's because you were to them 
Uh, incidentally, the NIV, for some reason, puts Israel here, and I do not know why, because if you look at the footnote, it just says them. The pronoun is them, and the closest antecedent is Moses and Aaron and Samuel. You were to them a forgiving God, though you punished their misdeeds. I don't know if you realize it or not, but these three men, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, were colossal failures at the end of their life. Something about getting old that, that we, sort of frightening. A lot of friends would get old and just collapse spiritually. And here you have examples of three men that fell apart at the end of their life. Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. I bet you didn't know that. You know, and Christian biographers uh, always portray the saints of the past as a steady stream of pious, perfect, faithful, insightful, prayerful leaders that hardly ever make a mistake. I can't identify with people like that. And our national biographers always portray the great heroes of our past as, as perfect men and women. Again, I can't, I can't identify with them. In the Old Testament and the New Testament is a realistic presentation of people just the way they are, seams and all. Now, this isn't journalistic muckraking, you know. They're, they're not trying to just, just say unkind things or debunk history. They're they just, just expressing things the way they really are. As a friend of mine says, they... Uh, they proclaim the bad tidings as well as the glad tidings. And, and that's what they do to Samuel and, and to Aaron and to Moses. They, you know, the, these are men that we look back to as the great saints of the Old Testament. You know what happened to Moses? Moses had a problem all of his life with presumption. He kept running ahead of God. had a fierce temper. Caused him to do things that on occasion would set God's pro program back temporarily. He never frustrated it because you can't frustrate God by your sin, but he would stall things out. Kill the Egyptian and set things back for a while, as you know. And then he gets into the wilderness, and, and on one occasion the people were complaining because they didn't have water. God said, speak to the rock, or hit the rock with your staff. Moses hit it with his staff, and out came water. Uh, Forty years later, just as they were ready to go into the land, they come to Meribah. The same thing happened. They were griping and moaning and complaining about about uh, the, uh, the the dearth, the lack of water. And, and uh, God said to Moses, speak to the rock. Speak to the rock. Don't strike it. Speak to it. Moses goes out in front of the people and he says, you bunch of stiff-necked turkeys. He said, how long do I have to put up with you? And he takes his staff and he hits a rock. And the water came out because God is gracious. And God said, Moses, you can't go in to the land. In other words, Moses suffered the same fate that the people suffered at Kadesh Barnea 40 years before that terrible judgment that fell upon the people of God. Because they did not believe the promises. They were not faithful to the promises. Moses was not faithful to God's command. And his lifelong ambition to get into the land was frustrated. So the Bible not only tells us about men and women's sins, it tells us about the terrible consequences of our sins. Now Samuel is another case in point. Samuel was a judge for any number of years. I've forgotten the exact number of years that he judged Israel. At the end of his life, he appointed his ungodly sons as judges over Israel. 
These men were unscrupulous. They had no fear of God. They didn't care anything about God. And Samuel appointed them as judges, perhaps out of fear of the controversy that it would cause in his family. I don't know why. But the people came to Samuel and said, all right, you've done it now. You can't be a judge over us anymore. We want a king. We're not going to have your sons and we're not going to have you. Samuel was crushed. He was deposed. He was set aside. He was no longer judge over Israel. Now, what, what you see in this is what the Old Testament calls the fear of God. You cannot trivialize the truth of God. You can't temporize with God. You can't play games with Him. As the Scripture tells us, tells us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. And you see what? God hates sin so much that He may on occasion become our enemy and act against us in order to burn away the thing that is causing the separation between us and God. But while we go through the terrible consequences of, of our sin, God puts His arms around us. That's what the psalm means when it says, You're a forgiving God. Though you punish our misdeeds, He continues to love us. He continues to minister to us. He continues to use us. Though Moses didn't get into the land, he, uh, he, he, he gave a number of sermons just before he died, which are in, in the book of Deuteronomy, and there's a profound emphasis in those sermons on the love of God. He came to see God in a new and significant way, a way in which he'd never seen him before. He came to realize more of the love of God, though his lifelong ambition to step into the land was frustrated. And by the way, as a nice little note, you read the story of the Transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus and the three disciples went on top of the mountain, and who did they see? They saw Moses. So when Moses went home, he, he got it all. He got the land. God didn't withhold any good thing. But, but during this life, he was thwarted and frustrated. He wasn't able to realize his ambition because God had a higher purpose, and that was to deal with the sin in Moses' life and draw him closer, closer to him. Same is true of Samuel. Though Samuel was deposed, he was no longer a judge over Israel. He, he, he continued to be a counselor to Saul through those difficult years when Saul was going insane. And, and then he was a counselor to David, and much of what David later learned could be attributed back to Samuel. God used this great old man greatly, though... Though he was, he was set aside, he lost his position of prominence. George MacDonald put it this way. He's always a little hard for me to understand, but he says, Nothing is inexorable but love. Therefore, all that is not lovely in the beloved, all that comes between and is not of love's kind must be destroyed. And our God is a consuming fire. Let's don't forget that. He loves us enough that he will sometimes move against us. That's what the Old Testament means by the fear. The fear of God. You don't play games with God. As Galatians 6 puts it, as Paul puts it in Galatians 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever we sow, we reap. It's the law of inevitable consequence. If we choose to disobey, we will suffer the consequences as Moses did and as Samuel did and as David did. And 
and God's fire will will burn out the impurities, and, and we may suffer a great deal. We may suffer the consequences of our sin, but through it, God puts His arms around us. He loves us because He's a forgiving God. As I said before, God is not there for our convenience. He has a higher and a greater purpose in mind. We were cleaning out some stuff in our in our house this past week. Came across a copy of The Wind and the Willows. I, I've always loved that book, and I just sat down on the floor and read parts of it. There's one situation where Rat and Mole were walking along the Thames, and they they had just come in contact with their friend and, and helper, Kenneth Graham. I don't know anything about Kenneth Graham, but he must have a, a deep faith because it just keeps coming out a little ways in the book. So they they, uh, they 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 encounter friend, capital F, and helper, capital H. And uh, Mole says to Rat, Rat, aren't you afraid? And Rat says, afraid of him? And Graham says, his eyes burned with an unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never, Mole. And yet I am afraid. And that's that's the way we have to live. With the fear of God in our hearts. Knowing that he loves us. Knowing that he came to earth to save us. Knowing that he's on our side. And yet, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh, about 25 years ago, I guess it was, I, uh, I was, uh, we had first come to California, and I didn't know anything about, about the ocean, I'd been raised in Texas. And we went out to Point Lobos, and I had uh, Randy in my arms, and we were standing out on a, a rocky uh, little rocky peninsula, and it was several feet above the ocean, and I was had ran, I just walked out on that rock, and we were admiring the ocean and looking around us. And stayed out there about ten minutes, and I turned around, walked back with Randy, and we got back on the beach, and all of a sudden this huge wave came up out of the ocean and crashed right over that rock. And if I'd been standing there, I would have been swept out to sea along with, with Randy. That's when I learned to fear the ocean. What that means is that I gained a very healthy respect for its capacity. You don't play games with the ocean. Take it very seriously. And that's what this passage is, is teaching us. Our God is a consuming fire. And perhaps you right now are having to pay the consequences of, of your sin. I want you to know that he's a forgiving God. His arms are around you. He's going to continue to use you, even through the pain. Let's pray. Father, you are the high and holy one, lifted up, lofty, above us, but not above it all. We thank you that you became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld your glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We also want to uh, want to acknowledge again as your people that you are holy. Holy, holy, holy is our Lord. This is our God who is holy, who cannot bear sin, cannot put up with it. And who therefore will deal with it, but who puts up with us, who bears with us, who abides faithful to us, who is committed to.
perfecting us and burning out every part of our life that stands between between him and his love. We thank you for that. We want to worship you for it. We want to exalt your name and praise you because you are our God. We thank you in Jesus' name.